Good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome uh, from me. Let me add uh, to what Nathan said before. Uh, it's fantastic to have you with us. Thanks for logging on and zooming in, and this is such a different way for us to do church together. Uh, but as the, the kind of distance that we can travel uh, becomes less and less, it's good to remember that God's Word keeps going out and our technology helps with that. Um, I, I do hope, like Nathan, that you'll be able to stay on afterwards and join in the breakout rooms. Um, I, I testify as well to just how encouraging uh, it's been to see uh, faces of, of brothers and sisters at church every Sunday morning and it's been fun to hear some of the light-hearted things that have been going on for each other. It's been good also to hear some of the serious things and therefore to be able to pray with each other. Uh, but as we've heard, we're in John chapter 4 this morning, and uh, I think this is going to be a great help to us, because once again, although now from a completely new perspective and with a fresh new round of evidence, our author John wants us to see, first of all, that Jesus is the Christ, God's rescuing ruler, and second, that he is the saviour of the whole world. And if those two truths seem a little bit old hat to you, uh, the kind of thing that you've heard many, many times before. Perhaps for you, the surprising thing in our passage this morning is who says these truths and why? Uh, because the first is told to us by Jesus. And if we are familiar with the Gospels at all, we'll know just how rare this is for Jesus to make an open admission like this, especially so, out for, so far out from his crucifixion. And so we'll need to think carefully about why he does it here. And then the second is told to us by a, a group of people who are so completely unlikely, so absolutely unexpected uh, to be accepted by Jesus, that once it was clear they had been accepted by Jesus, even they understood it could mean just one thing, that he really had come as the saviour of the world. Uh, like so many passages in John's Gospel, this passage is really uh, the report of a significant conversation that Jesus has with someone and as always, Jesus is the master conversationalist. There are no careless words. Nothing he says falls to the ground without reason. Um, everything he says is specifically for the purpose of moving a person along in their understanding of who he is and what he came into the world to do. So if you've got a Bible there, John chapter 4, the scene is really set for us in the first six verses. Last week in chapter 3, uh, Jesus was down in the south of the country, first in Jerusalem, uh, speaking with Nicodemus, and then after that out in the Judean countryside where his disciples began baptising and making disciples. But now at the start of chapter 4, the Pharisees catch wind of what's going on and this following that Jesus is starting to amass. And we know from chapter 2 that the hour has not yet come for Jesus to be rejected by the Jewish leaders and so he avoids any conflict before it even happens and he decides to withdraw and go back up to the north of the country in Galilee but that does take him through Samaritan country and the significance of that we've already heard it is mentioned to us in John's little side note at the end of verse 9 that Jews do not normally associate with Samaritans yes in the long distant past they might have shared a common ancestry, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. But by the time of the New Testament, the division between Jews and Samaritans was long and deep and it was keenly felt by both sides of, of this division. And so this is not the kind of place we would normally expect the ministry of Jesus to take hold. But here he is. 
at a town called Sychar, near a plot of ground that Jacob once gave to Joseph. It's the middle of the day, there's a well nearby, Jesus is tired and he sits down to rest. In verse 7, this Samaritan woman comes out to draw water. Uh, Jesus asks her for a drink. Normally his disciples would have done this kind of thing, but they're off in town uh, buying some food. And the woman immediately understands the awkwardness of what Jesus has just done. And she says to him, well, hang on, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Uh, But Jesus replies, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, well, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I don't know if you've got a a lockdown skill that you've been trying to develop. I read uh, online a few weeks ago of a Sydney Anglican minister who is trying to teach himself how to skateboard. I feel like for me that's only going to end up in a trip to the hospital. Um, But I have been working on my cryptic crossword skills. And uh, one of the things I'm learning more and more is that when you're doing a cryptic crossword, words can sometimes have more than one meaning. And if you don't realise that, if you don't recognise it, you probably won't understand the clue or you won't be able to find the answer. So Wednesday in the week just gone, uh, I solved everything but one answer in the cryptic crossword. I was so close to getting it out. The clue that I missed was keeps an eye on lizards. And the answer was monitors. You can have lizards that are monitors and, and to keep an eye on, you monitor something. I just hadn't remembered that word that has these different meanings. Well, it's a bit like that in John's Gospel. Exactly the same words can sometimes mean different things to different people. And because Jesus is the man who has come from heaven to make God known to us, he never misses an opportunity to press a conversation beyond the meaning that is merely earthly and temporary and on to the meaning that is eternal and spiritual. And that's what's happening here as he talks about living water. From an earthly perspective, it could just mean kind of running water, fresh flowing water, the kind of water that supplies this well. But the woman knows the well is deep. She can see Jesus has got nothing to draw with. So where on earth is he going to get this living water? But Jesus isn't speaking about the water from the well. He is speaking about something far more profound, far more significant something deeply spiritual. Even the gift of God's Holy Spirit by which we have eternal life. And so he explains to the woman in verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And yet the woman still can't make the jump. Uh, In verse 15, she's clearly interested in what Jesus is offering, but she's still just thinking in earthly terms about the water and the well. Uh, Verse 16, Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come back. Uh, It's such a sudden change of topic, isn't it? Nothing's really prepared us for this in the conversation so far. Perhaps we wonder what Jesus is doing But in fact, he's being wonderfully kind and patient with this woman. He knows that she hasn't understood about the water, but he doesn't give up on her. He wants her to come to a knowledge of the truth. And 
by asking her about her husband, he's about to reveal to her something vitally important about himself. Because, you see, he already knows this woman inside out. He has God's own knowledge of her. He doesn't just see the externals that are obvious to everyone. He sees even the private things that are kept hidden. Uh, the woman says that she has no husband, as Jesus points out, strictly speaking, she's telling the truth. Although she has had five husbands, and the man she is now with is not her husband. And maybe we can now guess why she was at the well by herself in the middle of the day. Perhaps with this very checkered past, it was just much, much easier for her to avoid the company of the other women at the town, who probably would have come to the well in the morning or the evening when it was all a bit cooler. What is absolutely astonishing though, as well as brilliant and sublime and wonderfully comforting to us today as we read this passage, is that Jesus does not shame the woman in any way. It's terrible that sometimes we Christians can get this so wrong, but for Jesus... This woman's moral failures are not a cause for judgment and rejection. Far from it, they are the very reason he pursues her with such relentless determination. It's people like her, exactly, that he came into the world to save. Friends, it is so important that we remember this and we hold on to it fiercely and we treasure it. Undoubtedly, every one of us has in our past, maybe even in our present, things of which we would be horribly ashamed were our neighbours or colleagues or family members to discover them. And yet the gospel teaches us that we can come humbly and yet confidently lay them at the feet of Jesus. First of all, because he already knows all about them. And second, because they are the very reason he calls us to trust him and to follow him. That he might wash us clean from sin, set us free from its guilt and power, and give us God's undeserved gift of eternal life. Uh, now, though, it's the woman who changes the topic. Her moral failures are not where she wants this conversation to be focused. And so she throws up a big, juicy theological controversy between the Samaritans and Jews. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Now, from our perspective, I guess this seems like a long-lost debate. And yet the thinking behind it is still very familiar because even today... Uh, most of the world's dominant religions maintain that particular places are necessary in the worship of their various gods. Uh, Mecca in Islam is the obvious example, but you find the same kind of thing in Buddhism or in Shinto religion or in Hinduism, particular places where uh, worship must take place because they are sacred. Now, at least for Old Testament Israel, there was, in the choice of Jerusalem, some sense of genuine kind of revealed truth 
And so Jesus says in verse 22, look, the Jews, we worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. But actually, the much more important thing Jesus has to say here is that now that he has come into the world, a whole new mode of worship is is coming into effect. Where the importance of physical earthly places, even Jerusalem, is completely done away with. And so he says in verse 23, a time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth. Or perhaps a better translation is simply in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. Do we see what Jesus is saying here? It's absolutely groundbreaking and completely revolutionary. Now that he has come into the world, the worship that God accepts and is seeking, the service that God accepts and is seeking, the love and devotion that God accepts and is seeking, the obedience and prayer that God accepts and is seeking, is not just for the Jews up at Jerusalem, but can be taken up and offered now by all people everywhere through believing in Jesus. It is spiritual worship and it is for people from every nation, tribe and tongue. It is spiritual worship and it's based on the truth that is revealed in and by and about Jesus. And by this point, the woman is very close now to the truth. She says in verse 25, I know that Messiah that is Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus wonderfully declares to her in verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Uh, I mentioned before just how rare it is for Jesus to make this kind of open admission, especially so far out from his crucifixion. Uh, what's more, he, he makes it here not to a fellow Jew, but to a Samaritan, from the Jewish perspective, a member of a despised people. And, and especially in her case, she's got this morally questionable past. Why does Jesus speak like this to her, but not to the Jews? Why doesn't he come out and tell the Jews plainly like this, that he is the Messiah, the Christ? Perhaps because if they were to hear such a claim, uh, their understanding of it would be just completely distorted by all their expectations of what the Christ would be like and what he would do. And yet Jesus did not come into the world to satisfy any human agenda. He came into the world to do the will and complete the work of his heavenly Father. And therefore... Of this, we must be absolutely certain. He is still God's rescuing king. He is still the Christ. He is the Messiah. But his kingdom is not of this world. And therefore, if we are to receive him as king, we must let him set the parameters of what his kingdom and kingship looks like. And the character of his kingship is determined by God, not by us. 
But to this Samaritan woman, without all the preconceived ideas of the Jews, Jesus openly admits who he is. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. Now, at this point, the disciples return and they're surprised to find Jesus speaking with a woman. They don't dare ask him about it, though. Uh, I guess they've already got used to the idea that he does things that other people don't. Uh, the woman heads back into town to tell the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? Uh, but there is that lovely little detail in verse 28, and we heard this before, that she left her water jar at the well. In other words, so far has this woman come in her understanding of who Jesus is and what he offers, and, and so eager is she now to share what she has learned about Jesus with others. It's as if she's completely forgotten her reason for coming out to the well in the first place. And there's always a sense of this whenever a person comes to know that Jesus is the Christ. Their old way of life is completely interrupted. New priorities, new concerns take precedence. Uh, in particular, the urgent priority of testifying about Jesus to others. And uh, we've seen this before in John, haven't we? Uh, back in chapter 1 with John the Baptist to the Jewish leaders and with Andrew to his brother Simon, with Philip to Nathaniel. Time and time again in John's Gospel, believers are also testifiers. And it just stands to reason, doesn't it? If we have come to know the one that God has sent into the world to rule and to rescue people from sin. If we have come to know that it's through him alone that we can receive living water that becomes in us a spring welling up to eternal life. If we have come to know the worship that God now accepts and is seeking is, is, is brought about by believing in Jesus. If we have come to know that if we won't believe in him, then we stand before God condemned because we've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. If all these things are true, then of course, as believers, we will also be testifiers. And as receivers, we will also be witnesses. And as those who have received from Jesus living water, we will also become those who, who call others and invite them to take up the living water that Jesus offers. Now, Jesus hasn't commanded the woman to go and tell the townspeople. He's loving acceptance of her and his authority as the Christ and Messiah. That is more than enough of a prompt. Just as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for Christ's love compels us we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. It's the love of Christ that compels Christian witness in the world. How wonderful then that when the people in the town hear, uh, heard the woman's testimony, uh, many of them came out to listen to Jesus for themselves and, and they urged him to stay with them and he did for two more days and that's remarkable given the general Jewish prejudice towards the Samaritans. 
But because of his words, many more become believers, even to the point that they say to the woman in verse 42, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the saviour of the world. Uh, So often in John's Gospel, the Jews get caught up uh, looking for Jesus to do miraculous signs. It's just lovely that there's no hint of that from the Samaritans here. They are just hanging on every word that Jesus speaks and, and that is more than enough to give them a knowledge of the truth. And friends, of course, it's the same for us today. Apologetics has its place. Answering people's questions and objections is important. But apologetics alone doesn't bring eternal life. Christian deeds of love and mercy are inescapable. The New Testament is so clear about this. But by themselves, these two will not save anyone. Now, what brings eternal life, whether for ourselves in the first place, if we are still exploring Christianity and considering Christ for ourselves, or if we're already a follower of Christ for the people we love who don't yet love God. But what brings eternal life is an encounter with the person and the life and the words and the works and the sufferings and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what these Samaritans have. They encounter Jesus, they hear his words, and they believe in him. And it's extraordinary that they can deduce from all this that Jesus is the saviour of the world. Imagine having such an awareness of your own distance from God, your own natural unworthiness to be accepted by Jesus that when you come to understand you have been accepted by Jesus, this is the only conclusion which reasonably fits the evidence. That he has come as the saviour for all people without distinction. And this has been God's plan of salvation all along, uh, which Jesus explains to the disciples. Because you see, they get back from the town with all the food that they've bought and they try to get Jesus to eat something. And then in something of a a kind of parallel conversation to the one that he had with the woman about the water, in verse 42, Jesus starts talking with them about the fact that he's got a different kind of food to eat. And he's not just talking about the food that goes in through the mouth and into the stomach. They don't have a clue what he's talking about. They're not thinking about spiritual and eternal things. They're just thinking about earthly and and temporary things but but the food jesus is talking about is to do the will of the one who sent him and to finish his work which he explains in verse 35 don't you have a saying it's still four months until harvest i tell you open your eyes and look at the fields they are ripe for harvest Uh, undoubtedly friends many of us uh, find it hard for many reasons to share with others about Jesus and in general terms uh, we kind of feel a great sense that the cultural moment is kind of against us and of course the current lockdown makes it much harder than it's felt for a long time to just maintain our normal relationships 
let alone get into gospel conversations. But friends, let's not grow weary and let's not lose hope. Let's not stop praying and let's not stop letting our conversation be seasoned with salt. Let's not stop being loving and wise in the way we act towards outsiders and let's not stop having our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Jesus is the Christ. He is the saviour of the world. He offers living water that will become inside a person a spring welling up to eternal life. And he has said that the fields are ripe for harvest. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the Lord Jesus and we're thankful for his teaching, for the way that he always works to help people come to an understanding of who he is and what he came into the world to do. Thank you most of all for his teaching here that now is the time when the fields are ripe for harvest and people can come to him for eternal life. Help us to do that and help us to hold out this hope to others.